Not so long ago, it was extremely difficult for somebody in the LGBT community to even get information if, if their partner was in the hospital or, or needed some kind of care. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. I also lead a caregiver support group in my local community. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Speaking of best medicines, right? (laughs) (laughs) You got that right. (sighs) So we've talked about how... Caregiving and care recipients come from all walks of life and how dementia is an equal opportunity offender. And it's so important to reach out to educate as many uh, people as possible. And that brings us to today's guest. He's the Senior Director of National Projects at SAGE, where he is responsible for overseeing SAGE's national training initiatives, managing federal and private grants, and providing consulting services to both aging and LGBT service providers. He is also the author of Welcoming LGBT Residents, a Practical Guide for Senior Living Staff, the first comprehensive book on how to create more inclusive environments for LGBT older adults. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Tim R. Johnston. Welcome, Tim. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tim. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, it's it's difficult enough for family members to consider placing someone, a family member with dementia, into a facility. Um, sometimes they've made promises that they will never do that and then realize that it's not possible to keep that promise. I can only imagine how difficult it can be for somebody in the LGBT community who doesn't feel welcome or don't know if they would be welcome or what it would be like once they get there. So we are so happy to have you on the show today so you can speak to that and about training people and educating people so that our elder people, regardless of their orientation, feel safe when they need to be protected and cared for. Absolutely. It's a topic we are very passionate about and When it comes to the topic of memory care and dementia, there's a lot to talk about both from the perspective of an LGBT person who is living with the disease and might be the person who is moving into one of these communities, but also the particular strains and situations experienced by caregivers who identify as LGBT and might be caring for a parent or another loved one. Did you have personal experience with, you know, dealing with somebody with dementia? What brought you to this work? I came to this work through LGBT activism. So I had been doing work with several different LGBT groups and in some of my academic research had been working on the topic of bullying and anti-bias education. And it was through doing that research that I came to volunteer and then be hired at SAGE. And that's when I became more aware of the specific needs of older adults and became very passionate about elder justice. 
I do, both of my um, maternal grandparents had vascular dementia. So I do have some personal experience with folks who experienced memory loss and some confusion toward the end of their lives. But most of my work with people living with dementia has been since I've joined SAGE and have been working in memory care communities and other long-term care contexts. Tell us a little bit about SAGE and some of the the things that you do as the uh, outreach. So SAGE is an organization that's over 40 years old. It started as a group of advocates putting together a mutual aid network in New York City so that LGBT folks could have supports as they aged. But since then, we've grown to be a national advocacy group. We have LGBT-centered senior centers in the New York City area. So if you're wondering what an LGBT senior center feels like, I can tell you that we do have bingo, and it's run by a drag queen. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Awesome. Yeah, I I joke because bingo is pretty early in the day, and I think she must wake up at four in the morning to get fully dressed uh, before leading our bingo. Um, But the work that I oversee more directly has to do with our training and cultural competency work. So I lead a fantastic team of staff and also trainers around the country who work with service providers to give them information about LGBT people, the correct terms to use, words to avoid, um, some suggestions and best practices to create a more welcoming environment, because it's our goal that LGBT folks can reach out to anyone for services and expect to be treated you know, with respect and compassion like we all deserve. And I, th- I think that's definitely a goal that we that everybody should strive for. You deal mostly with elders because that's where a lot of dementia hits, but we're also seeing a good deal more of early onset um, in, in younger people. Um, some as early as in their late 30s, early 40s, but definitely in their 50s and 60s. Um, so the more education we can get out there now and the better trained with all the more people that are going to be moving into this, the better off it's going to be for everyone. Absolutely. And that's especially true when you consider folks who also might have experienced a traumatic brain injury and now are experiencing some similar symptoms to someone who might be living with dementia. And one thing that your comment is making me reflect on as well that I feel I should mention is that ageism is as much a part of the LGBT community as it is our larger community. So for those LGBT folks who might be listening to this podcast, it's important that we speak with members of our community about taking care of yourself, having your advanced directives into place, thinking about your healthcare needs, so that we're prepared in case something, you know, heaven forbid, such as an early onset diagnosis is given, that our community is able to rally around that person and support them. Well, the fact of the matter is, as fast as this is growing, probably in the next 10 to 15 years, what the incidence is going to double or even triple. I I compare it to a a worldwide pandemic, Mm -hmm. but we're dealing with another type of pandemic right now. And part of my outreach is to teach people in your age group uh, how to prepare to care. And if you're ever interested in, in talking to me about that, you know, I have a webinar uh, on prepare to care. Everybody should be working on these things well before they need them. I'm also glad that you mentioned traumatic brain injury because that is also part of our outreach. There are so many different forms of dementia, and, and the brain is such a complicated organ 
And when something goes wrong with it, a lot of times the behaviors and the situations caregivers deal with are very similar. Absolutely. And as it relates to preparing to care, some of the information we've found that's specific to the LGBT population is that LGBT people are informal caregivers at higher rates than non-LGBT people. It's a couple percentage points higher. And one possible reason for this is that some LGBT people um, and some groups of LGBT folks have children at lower rates than their non-LGBT siblings or counterparts. So sometimes people think, for example, that the gay son, because he doesn't have kids, is in a better position to be providing informal care to a family member. So we see elevated levels there. And the other thing that I'll note is that LGBT folks are more likely to be supported by groups that we call chosen family. So folks that aren't biological or legal relatives, but creating a care plan that involves LGBT people will often require pulling back from just that nuclear family and really thinking, who are the folks who are truly your support network and how can we make sure those people feel empowered to be um, helping care for you in this time of need? So I imagine that part of your um, education is that they get with uh, attorneys and get those documents in place because not so long ago it was extremely difficult for somebody in the LGBT community to even get information if if their partner was in the hospital or or needed some kind of care. Do you run into that at all now? Yes, we do. Um, so one thing that is relatively new for the LGBT community is the acceptance of same-sex marriage. So there are so many rights, as you well know, that come along with becoming married to somebody. But for a lot of members of the LGBT community, and in particular, some older members of the community, marriage is still seen as very much a heterosexual institution. And a lot of folks might have been together for a long time, but never been married, either because they choose not to, or perhaps because it would negatively impact the benefits that they're receiving or change their income in such a way that they'll then have a, a tricky situation down the road. So we do a lot of education work to say, you know, hey, you've lived with this person for 40 years, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be your decision maker or that they'll be able to stay in the apartment if it's only your name that's on the lease, for example. So we do a lot of work to take folks and look at who their network is and then get them access to the services that would help strengthen those connections through things like a power of attorney or other legal paperwork. One of the things I noticed in doing research for the, for the episode today is on the SAGE website, there's a lot of online training that's available for folks. Absolutely. So we train a couple of different ways. Before the pandemic, we did a lot of in-person training. So we would send our folks out to be working through a half day or a whole day session with um, leaders in the aging sector. We've now transitioned that to an online virtual training where folks complete some self-study and then meet with a trainer for some coaching via Zoom or another video platform. But we also have a lot of training tools that are videos and self-paced training products so that staff can, for example, have it be assigned to their learning management center and then go in and complete it whenever their schedule allows. We found that that's a way to reach folks, especially people who are working second and third shifts where it might be difficult to get a trainer out there at 2 a.m. to be catching the overnight shift. But our philosophy is that 99.9% .9 of providers out 
there are in the caring profession because they are caring people and they want to be reaching LGBT folks with high quality care. They just don't know what they don't know. So it's our job to bring them that information and give them the tools that they need to do their job um, to the standards they have set for themselves as an organization. They don't know what they don't know is so um, common <laughs> when dealing with people that are beginning to care for somebody with dementia as yeah. well. Um, so th there are indeed a lot of parallels. Did you find it difficult when you first started, when you were approaching, say, the care facilities to get people to understand there was even a need? Yes. The most common thing that I hear when I tell people what I do is, oh, I never thought about LGBT people getting older. You know, there aren't too many celebrities or um, public figures or people in the media who really kind of sit at the intersection of being an older person and LGBT. So I would call up a community and say, hey, I'd love to come and give a presentation about working with LGBT residents, for example. And they'd say, oh, no, that's very nice of you, but we don't have any LGBT residents. And I would say, well, how many people live in your community? Say, so, oh, you know, about 200. I think, okay, well, statistically then, you definitely do have LGBT <laughs> folks, but for whatever reason, they are not disclosing that identity or you haven't asked them if they identify as LGBT. And a lot of this rests on the assumption that some people have, which is that they can identify an LGBT person, either through how they act, their mannerisms, the way that they dress, so on and so forth. And what that doesn't take into account is that a lot of LGBT older people have decades of experience being discreet about their identity. And staying in the closet was often a matter of survival, and that experience translates into a congregate living setting where they will then say, you know, I'm going to go back into the closet until I get some pretty clear signs that it's okay to be out in this context. And that's the kind of thing we try to help with. When you, when you move into a community like that, where you're together 24-7 and you don't know who these other people are or what their perceptions are, what, what their attitudes are, I can, I can only imagine. One of the... the things that I saw on your website, you have the um, SAGE tables. Uh, do you have those for um, dementia caregivers? That's a good question. So SAGE table is a very grassroots program where we give people a facilitation guide and some resources on how to host a multi-generational meal. And some of our hosts have had thematic meals. Um, so that could be something like a a meal for dementia caregivers. I don't know off the top of my head if anyone has done that specifically, but I think that would be an excellent way to reach out to folks who are maybe both in the LGBT community or allies, and then also have the shared experience of being a caregiver. And it, it, it's important, um, especially if it's going to be a, tab a table where people are dining, mm -hmm. because very often people with dementia have horrible eating habits mm -hmm. and they not only spill things but they overfill their mouths and you know food can be falling out and if you have somebody with dementia and the caregiver at the table as part of this group then you have people who understand mm -hmm. what what's going to happen at the table and not sit there thinking oh my god what just happened here um so when you have the combination of both LGBT and dementia, 
um, you want to have people around the table who understand both. Absolutely. And I think one thing I have spent a lot of time thinking about is the role of stigma in both of these experiences, because LGBT identities have often been stigmatized, which can then lead someone to be closeted, which is a very isolating and self-isolating experience. And likewise, being a caregiver can be isolating because there's stigma around the diagnosis, there's stigma around behaviors, as you just noted, that might be surprising for somebody who's not accustomed to caring for a person with dementia. So a context like what you're suggesting, where it's folks who share both experiences would be, I think, a great way to combat that isolation because people have the shared experience that they can then um, relate to one another through. And I think there's another similar, uh, you know, I tell people there are dementia caregivers and the people that they're caring for are an invisible community. But very often they are isolated. They don't feel comfortable going out. And because of that, people are unaware of how many are affected, which means they don't need to know, they don't feel they need to know to learn about it. So that's what you're educating people about in the LGBT community and what we're trying to educate people about in the dementia community. And there's definitely going to be some interaction between the two. Absolutely. And one of our concerns is that caregivers who identify as LGBT might not feel comfortable reaching out to their local support communities for, for other caregivers or to local respite care because they might think, sure, there's a caregiver group over here, but am I going to be the only trans person at that group? Am I going to be uh -huh. the only LGBT person? So that's why we've partnered with groups like the Alzheimer's Association to work with them to both create LGBT-specific groups and resources where there's a demand for that, sure. but then also to make sure that all of their groups are open to LGBT folks to help remove those barriers. Mm -hmm. If I don't know anything about including somebody in LGBT in my um, care facility, what's the first thing that you would try to say to them, to educate them, to convince them that this is, this is something that they need to do? I think the first and most important skill that staff can build is to not make assumptions. We tend to assume that people are not LGBT. And this happens in a lot of different and very subtle ways. So, you know, for example, a man and a woman walk into a care consultant meeting and you say, oh, would you and your wife like to sit down? You know, that's an assumption right there. Or if somebody says that they have children, people will often then assume that they're part of a different sex or heterosexual couple. So there are a lot of ways that we make these kind of subtle assumptions. So the first thing I do is say, you know, take a step back don't assume how people identify or what their relationships are and let them describe it to you as the conversation unfolds. I think also it's important to understand just how large the LGBT population is and how large the LGBT older adult population is. Statistics are saying that today there's anywhere from three to four million LGBT older folks. And over the next 10 or 15 years, that number is gonna to grow to at least seven million. So to put that into context, today there are about as many LGBT people over the age of 55 as there are people living in the city of Chicago. And that number is expected to grow to just shy of the population of Metro New York area. 
So it's a very large population and one that's often, as you've noted, invisible. Um, so I think having people understand that if they don't think they are working with LGBT older adults, they almost certainly are. And what that tells me is that the folks they're working with don't feel comfortable being out. And I think that's an important kind of mindset to get folks into so that they then think, this is a part of my job already, and it's something that I could learn some more about. How comfortable would the LGBT person be putting forth that information in the course of that conversation right out of the box? Yeah, I think here it's important to have the mindset of um, you don't want to ask someone necessarily directly or be kind of overbearing about it. How I think about it is how can we remove every barrier to somebody wanting to come out or feeling comfortable coming out. So what I mean by that is if I go into a community and all of the forms only have male and female on there as an option to tick off the box, and for relationship status, it only says married, single, divorced, and all of the brochures have pictures of heterosexual people on them, you know, in linen pantsuits on the beach, as they always seem to do. <laughs> um, and if I don't see any LGBT people or any mention of the LGBT community, all those things are going to send a message to me that I'm not necessarily welcome in that space. But if I show up and the form has multiple options for gender identification, if it has options for people in the demographic section to to choose to disclose their sexual orientation and gender identity. If folks ask me what my pronouns are, if I see a rainbow flag, if I notice some messaging around pride for June month, you know, all of those are ways that an organization can not only say you're welcome here as an LGBT person, but in fact, we already have LGBT people here, which is why we're collecting this data, asking these questions, putting this training into place. So again, with the exception of optional demographic intake tools, where I think it is appropriate to ask questions about sexual orientation and gender identity, with the exception of that narrow area, you don't necessarily want to ask people directly, but you want to think, how can I send over and over the message that if somebody were to choose to come out, that would be received well? by myself or by my staff. That answered a question um, that I had been thinking about how uncomfortable it would be to go in and, you know, I'm thinking my family member, my partner um, needs this kind of support, but to have somebody ask, what is your sexual orientation, that that might be off-putting, but you just answered that question by making, by doing the outreach ahead of time and letting, you know, put this information out in the brochures and in, in the facility itself answered that question. It seems to me that that would be a really tough nut to crack getting that started. Um, and, and it's not something that we think about. I know I, I certainly didn't think about it. And if you're not in the community, those things are completely foreign. Mm -hmm. But they shouldn't and, be. <laughs> no, but it's like, remember when we went to the um, uh, Wheelchair America and the person said they're, they're most annoyed, the thing they're most annoyed about is cracks in the sidewalk. And I never thought about cracks in the sidewalk being such a hazard for somebody in a wheelchair because I'm not in that community. But 
Um, so I, I guess the people not in that community would have a hard time thinking down that direction, which is why what you're doing is really, really important. Well, and one thing I like to emphasize is that the kinds of skills and changes that an individual or an organization can make to be more welcoming to the LGBT community will also improve the quality of care for everybody else. It's, it's not a zero-sum equation where you give some to one minority group and take from another, but I think, in fact, this work elevates the care for everybody. And I'll give you a concrete example. Um, when we suggest that people collect demographic data on sexual orientation, for example, sometimes people become upset because they're confusing sexual activity with sexual orientation. So they'll say, like, oh, I can't ask if somebody's gay, lesbian, bisexual, or heterosexual because what they do in the bedroom is their business. And I'll say, like, that's true. However, your sexual orientation is about your community. It's about your personal history. It's about getting to know someone as an individual. And that then invites a conversation the community can have about, like, yeah, I, as a heterosexual person, for example, have a history of sexuality. And I have um, a history of relationships and also a history of sexual needs that doesn't stop just because I'm now older or moving into this community. So integrating that question can both have the positive impact of collecting important data, sending a positive message to LGBT folks, but also starting a broader conversation about, you know, what is the role of human sexuality in our community and how can we support all of our residents, all of our constituents to be experiencing the full range of what it means to connect human to human. Now, you said something when we were talking the other day about your goal is to reach the people who'd rather jump out the window than um, <laughs> have to deal with you. Um, do you teach or how do you teach the people that work in these facilities to handle it if there's people in that facility who are just horrified by the idea uh, of somebody in the LGBT community coming in there? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think in the same way that we need to train our staff to be able to engage in person-directed care, we have to take a person-directed approach to staff as well and understand that every staff person will have their own level of comfort and familiarity with this topic. So when people have a very strong visceral reaction to the idea of an LGBT training or an LGBT resident, I think it's worth interrogating what's underneath that reaction. So is it fear? You know, they have misinformation. They think that all gay people have HIV and AIDS, for example. Very common misconception that could lead to a fear reaction. If that's the case, then sometimes information is enough to dispel that fear. Um, another very powerful tool is humanizing the topic, you know, showing videos, introducing an LGBT trainer, helping people to understand that LGBT folks are people, just like all their other residents. That can be very helpful. Um, we go to great lengths to depoliticize our training. So to say this training is not to change how you vote, it's not to change your opinion, it's to give you professional skills to reach a vulnerable population. That's often very helpful. But I will say, if you are in the leadership of a community or an organization, and you have a staff person who after training, after conversation, and after discussion, simply refuses to engage with or treat or be respectful toward an LGBT resident, 
then that person is not capable of doing their job. They're refusing to treat people equitably, which I think then needs to be addressed as to whether or not that person is a good fit for the mission of your organization. So it's rare that it comes to that level, but we do ultimately need to have the perspective of the older adult and their care needs front and center. Well, people with dementia lose their filter and they could say things and they could make remarks that I'm sure would make um, people in the gay community very uncomfortable. Are, are, are you educating the people, the caregivers that about that? Because, you know, a sweet old grandma who wouldn't say a bad word if her hair was on fire all of a sudden starts spewing obscenities like crazy. Um, you know, somebody who had been very welcoming, normally somebody with dementia could all of a sudden just be, be hateful. Yeah, I think, and, and you'll be familiar with this, I'll, I'll say two things. One, in those instances, educating the care provider on the impact of the disease is crucial so that they understand that this isn't necessarily, you know, mom's true self, but is rather a, a symptom. And as it relates to being an LGBT caregiver, some of the kind of unique interactions that might come up is, you know, say, for example, my partner and I are caring for my mother with the disease, and she can't remember who my partner is. So she's calling him that man or my friend. If I don't understand what's happening with her disease process, I might think that she's doing that on purpose to be hurtful. And that's not necessarily the case. Or for example, if somebody has transitioned and maybe their physical appearance and their gender presentation is now very different than when they were younger, their parent might not understand who they are. They might not remember that they have medically uh, transitioned or changed their gender presentation. That happens again. You know, I've educated my daughter. If the time comes when I look at you and, and I don't recognize you, um, because I think I'm 30 and, and you know, and you're six, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't recognize you as an adult, that I hope you will look at me, smile, tell me your name, and tell me about your mother. Um, so I can definitely see if somebody has changed, even if, say, Mike shaved off that beard and mustache that he's had as long as I've known him. Um, I might not recognize him if I have dementia. Yeah. And I think, you know, professionals have the skills to explain that kind of thing to caregivers and to navigate that if they are attuned to the specifics in the situation. So we're trying to give them that um, sense of attunement so they can then take their expertise and work with the caregivers. So is there a resource or a program that you wish you had? It's not really a resource. I mean, I would love federally mandated cultural competency training for all care providers. <laughs> that, would, <laughs> that would be very helpful in getting those people in the room who otherwise wouldn't opt into it. But, uh, and that covers a tremendous amount. I mean, that crosses a tremendous amount of boundaries, mm-hmm. not just the LGBT community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, One thing that is interesting about the LGBT community is that there are LGBT people within every other minority community as well. Mm -hmm. You know, we're one identity that is found in all other groups. Um, And I mention that to say that when we do our work on LGBT inclusion, we try to really take an intersectional approach and talk about sexual orientation, talk about gender identity, but also highlight how this discussion is very different for a person of color, 
a person who's an immigrant, a person um, who is differently abled, you know, to kind of be keeping some of those lines uh, in mind, like you just described. I know our listeners haven't, our listeners haven't had this discussion through this podcast before. So I'm so glad that you agreed to be part of this and we could put this information out there. Um, We definitely want to be working with every community, like you said, um, to make it as easy as possible for elders and those who have dementia at any level to get respectful care. Thank you so much, Tim. Yeah, I always say that we could not do this work without allies and advocates helping amplify our message. So thank you so much for the opportunity. And if your listeners have questions, they should please feel comfortable to reach out to me directly and we will help in whatever way we can. Well, we will put uh, links to Sage uh, on the website, on the show website. So people will be able to just click and, and go there. And thank you so, so, so much for being part of the show. We're going to be talking about this for quite some time and, and learned a good bit. And uh, I think we shared some information too and gave uh, Tim an idea about that. Um, sage table. Sage table. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he gave me an aha moment when he said um, that sexual orientation doesn't mean what, that doesn't mean what happens in the bedroom. And I was like, huh. <laughs> I never, you know, the light bulb went on and hopefully other people here in the show, that light bulb will go on also and that realization will be there. And he also said that the LGBT community is typically, or in a lot of cases, a non-nuclear support system. I never thought of it in that context. Well, you know, um, they're, especially in the older community, their families didn't accept them. So right. they're looking out to others and, and their partners to take care of them. Um, Certainly learned a lot today. Yes, we did. You can find more information about Dr. Johnston and Sage on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.